guys know I love a good review. So guess what you're getting today? A good review. Yes, we are. So we're going to be talking about, uh, today we're dealing with and continuing in our study of the book of Joshua. We're 125 messages into the book of Joshua. We're in Joshua 21 today. We'll be in verses 9 through 19. But last week we were in verses 4 through 8. And in that message in Joshua 21, what we were looking at in that message was titled Faithfulness Rewarded. And we looked at the three different Levitical groups and the requirements or the responsibilities that they had. Um, And what we saw was as they did their jobs, God was rewarding them. And as we're going through this process in Joshua 21, what we're looking at is God's rewards for the faithfulness of his people. And they were rewarded with cities that they would get to dwell in. But what we saw as we worked through that study was we saw that the effort and the risk affiliated to to their responsibilities was commensurate with the rewards that they would receive. And one of their primary roles that they had was to care for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the most holy object on the earth at this point. At this point in time, there's nothing more holy than that tabernacle. It is listed and referenced time and time and time again through Scripture. And so what their responsibilities were, they were to maintain it, they were to transport it, and they were to to assemble it. And what we did was we first looked at, as I said, there's three groups. The first group we looked at were the Kohathites. Now, the Kohathites, these sons of Kohath, their responsibility was to take care of all of the furnishings, the things that were inside. And what you've got to realize, as I said, this is the most holy object. This was God's dwelling place. That's what the word tabernacle means. And what we find is the fact that these intricate uh, furnishings, this would be the, the Ark of the Covenant. This would be the, the showbread table. This would be the, uh, the Ark or the, or the Altar of Incense. This would be the, uh, the, the lampstand. These things were incredibly important to the worship that took place in there. And what would happen was, the Kohathites, they were the ones that worked with those. Now, in order to move them, this was a very dangerous job because if human hands touched them, they would die. So this was a, a, risky, a risky endeavor every time they did their job. So every time they fulfilled their responsibilities, they were literally risking their lives. Then we had the Gershonites. The Gershonites, each of the sons of Gershon, and they were responsible for all the tapestries, all the coverings, because remember, the, um, the, ta- the tabernacle was basically like a giant tent. It had layers upon layers of different fabrics and different materials and different skins. So their job was to move all of those things. Now, in doing their job, certainly what they did was seen, right? So we see that what they were doing was important. It was a very vital role, but it was not dangerous. They weren't risking their lives every time they moved the tapestries. They could touch them. That was not an issue. Then we also saw the Merarites. And with the Merarites, what we saw was their responsibility was to take care of all the timbers, all the, all the beams, and all the, the structure, the framework that, were to, that would hold up the tabernacle. And what would happen is their job was equally as important, but it was not seen. And what we did was we really looked at the pictures that are evident in Scripture of kind of how it relates to us. There are some people that are out there, and boy, what they're doing is risky. There are other people that what they're doing is important, and it's certainly seen. And there's other things, there's other Christians that are doing stuff that, guess what, no one ever sees it. But it's extremely important. It's extremely important. So what we did was we correlated these different groups to us as God's priests in the world today. And what we saw is the fact that, listen, there are some people that today are literally risking their lives in order to lift the Word of God to the world. Because understand, if these guys did their job, if all those tribal, those Levitical leaders did their jobs, then the most holy thing in the world would be put on display for the world to see. And in our world today, guess what? We don't have a tabernacle, but we do have the Word of God provided for us and preserved throughout time that is the most holy object that you can actually hold in hand today. And so now our job is to carry the Word of God to the world. 
And as I said, some will do risky jobs. They'll literally be in places where they're doing it, but risking their lives to do so. There will be others that will be in a place like America, maybe sharing their faith, and they're outspoken, and it's easily seen. And there are some that may, you know what, they're, they're kind of in the sidelines. They're kind of maybe in the shadows. And maybe you know what their job is? They're praying. They're giving, right? So we see that there's a picture for us. And what's really cool as we looked at that was their rewards were based upon their, their efforts and their risks. But guess what? In the end, they were all rewarded. And so that's what we got to realize. God rewards faithfulness. And that's the thing that we want to take away from last week. Now, this morning, as we pick back up with Joshua 21, what we're going to do now is we're going to get a little bit more specific. We're going to look at the actual gifts that are being given, the, the cities that are being distributed. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the specific entities that are receiving them, more specifically which Levitical groups and how they receive and what they receive. But I want you to keep in mind, <coughs> bear with me because I'm going to have to, choke, to cough a little bit. Bear in mind that the Old Testament, this is something that we've talked again and again and again. The Old Testament is a picture book, okay? It is a picture book that is going to reveal real things that took place in history. They all can be geographically and archaeologically proven that these things took place. But what's amazing is at the same time, while they are true events of real people, they are also intended to be pictures for you and I to look back into to see ourselves. So when we see the Levites, we see a picture of us. And as we're working through this, I want you to be mindful that God is trying to teach us specific lessons through what He's going to reveal to us today. So don't lose sight of what it is we're receiving, but also what we're learning about their story as well. Is that fair? Everybody with me? Yes. Cool beans. All right, let me get a sip of water and we're going to rock and roll. <laughs> All right. Our message this morning is titled, Where Honor is Due. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this gift of time and the gift of your word. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to me. Uh, Lord, as I did read this and study it, and Lord initially looked at it and said, ah, what, am I supposed to, what am I supposed to get from this? But Lord, boy, what you showed me, I just, I praise God, it worked in my heart. So Lord, I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way. Uh, Lord, my desire is not to be heard today. My Lord, my desire uh, is to get out of the way that your truth might be spoken to your people. So, Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear, that we might receive your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in Joshua, as I said, 21, verses 9 through 19. It says, And they gave out of the tribe of the children of Judah, and out of the tribe of the children of Simeon, these cities, which are, which are here mentioned by name, which the children of Aaron, being of the families of the Kohathites, who were of the children of Levi, had for theirs was the first lot. And they gave them the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron in the hill country of Judah, with the suburbs thereof round about it. But the fields of the city and the villages thereof gave they to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for his possession. And thus they gave uh, to the children of Arnon, uh, to Aaron, uh, the priest Hebron, with her suburbs, and to a city of refuge for the slayer, Libna, with her suburbs, and Jatir with her suburbs, and Eshtemah with her suburbs, these are the names of the cities, Holon with her suburbs, and Debir with her, with her suburbs, and Aen with her suburbs, and Juta with her suburbs, and Beth Shemesh with her suburbs, nine cities out of those tribes. So those are nine cities given out of Simeon and out of Judah. Now the tribe of Benjamin is going to give up some cities. And out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon and her suburbs, and Geba with her suburbs, and Anathoth, with her suburbs, and Almon with her suburbs, four cities. All the cities of the children of Aaron, the priests, were 13 cities with their suburbs, okay? So last week, as I said, we only talked about three groups. But what you need to understand is there's a division within the Kohathites, okay? There is a division there. So what we're seeing today is actually there were 23 cities given as a total. 
13, there was a break in the division last week. There was 13 that were given to one part of the Kohathites, and there were 10 that were given to another. Now, if you remember, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam were all Kohathites, okay? So as we're looking at the Kohathites, there is a division of them which are called the Aaronites. These are the sons of Aaron. And what we found in our message from last week is the fact that they received 13 cities. And so to understand what it is that we're reading now in Joshua 21, this is specifically to that group, those that are the sons of Aaron. And what we're going to do to talk to our first point today is showing how the Aaronites are worthy of their reward. The first thing is, our first point is a call to holiness. Okay? A call to holiness. And so as we're looking at them, again, let's not lose sight of what God wants to show us, a call to holiness. Because how many of us know that we're called to be holy? Amen, Amen right? That's God. That's, our, that's God's calling on us. And just so you know, uh, like many others in Scripture, the Aaronites' story is, a, is in part one of success, but also it's going to be one of failure at the same time. Because remember, these are real people. Okay, These are folks that are making, dealing with real challenges that are dealing with emotions, that make sometimes good choices and sometimes make bad choices. Can anyone relate? Yeah, man. Life is what it is. And you know what? Sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. Now, what we're going to look at is we look at Aaron. Aaron was Moses' elder brother. He was his right-hand man. When we go to the book of Exodus and we walk through there, what we find is the fact that, man, Aaron was a great supporter of of Noah, of Moses, of Noah, of Moab. Maybe Noah one day in heaven. But of Moses. But what we find is the fact that as we work our way through the story, he was, yes, a success, but he was also, he had some failings at the same time. Eventually, God would choose Aaron to take on and be the the cornerstone, we could say, of the priest class that he was going to establish. And we see this in Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. It says, And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron, thy brother, for glory and for beauty. Aaron was to be set apart as the high priest, and his sons were to be ministry partners or assistants to him. And as we continue in that Exodus chapter 28, from verse 3 to verse 33, what we'll find is that God starts to lay out these very intricate details about the way the clothing is going to be done. The breastplate, the, the, I mean, all kinds of details. And it's all very, very specific. When I taught through the book of Exodus, we went through every single nook and cranny of all that stuff. And we understand all the intricacies of it. But what we find ultimately is the fact that uh, everyone is supposed to be able to see Aaron and know that there's something different about him. He is supposed to be unique in his appearance. The purpose of this whole thing was to set Aaron and his sons apart from everybody else. Making them easily recognizable as servants of God. Does anybody see a picture in that? Yeah. yeah, right? You and I are supposed to be a peculiar people. We're not supposed to look like everybody else. We're supposed to, to appear different. So here we see this physical representation in the Old Testament is something that you and I need to apply to our own, our own heart. Listen to God's instructions to us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24. It says, That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to the seedful lust. Do you notice the, the wording that Paul uses? He says, put off. Yeah. Put off. The old, right? The former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. So if we imagine and we take that picture of the Old Testament and we apply it to ourselves, I'm going to put off. That means I'm wearing something, right? I had something that was on me. And it says here that it literally is deceitful lust. So my flesh, 
right? My, 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 the old man prior to salvation, deceitful lust is something you could indicate. Then he says in verse 23 and 24, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that ye put on the new man, which after God, the example of the Lord, is created in righteousness, and notice this last part, true holiness. He's saying, what I want you to do is take off deceitful lust and put on true holiness. Put on true holiness. There's a song we used to sing. I used to work on the bus route. And, uh, and we used to sing songs on the buses. And there's a song that we used to sing. And I'm going to sing it for you. And I'm not a good singer, but y'all just suffer through it with me. Because the message of the song is cool. I'm doing it anyway. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> it was like this. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. The old robe was dirty, all tattered and torn. The new robe was spotless, had never been worn. And the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. See, that's who we're supposed to be, right? When the Lord, when people look at us, they don't need to see the old robe, the tattered one. They need to see the righteousness of Christ in our lives. It's a responsibility. It's a goal that we look different. That we're not worn down and beaten by the world around us, but that we rise out of it. That the darkness that consumes so many people, that we shine out of the darkness as a light and people go, there's hope. They have something I do not have. Recognize the purpose of our life is not just about us. It's about a life, that the, the impact that we can have on the lives of people around us. God wants to use us for His glory. And notice this as, as we continue through this, these, um, this aspect of, of recognizing who we are. As the high priest, he starts to give us more intricate details. And there's a part I want to read to you here in, in verses 34 through 43. Again, we don't wear robes and ephods, but I want you to pay attention to what he says here. And it says, verse 43 or 34, <coughs> a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about. What this is telling us is it's a repeating pattern, okay? There's a pomegranate, which is a picture of fruitfulness, and there's a picture of that, and there's a bell. So all the way around the hem of Aaron's garment, there would be little bells hanging with a little pomegranate in between. And the point was, there's a reason for that. It says this, and it shall be upon Aaron to minister. And his sound, listen, his sound shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. Listen, holiness is of God is very serious about holiness. Aaron's righteous clothing, listen, was not just to be seen, but to be heard. Amen. Right? And if it continued to be heard, it, was, it meant that he was righteous. But if he was not righteous, guess what happened to the bells? <laughs> ching, 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 boom. If he went inside of the Holy of Holies and he did, was not right with God, he would die in the Holy of Holies. They would have a rope tied around his ankle and they would drag him out through the veil because nobody could go in and get him. Yep. It's no joke. So there's a picture in this. But notice this, verse 36. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold engraven upon it like the engraving of a signet. Notice this. This is supposed to be written right here across his forehead. Holiness to the Lord. So when you looked at his face, when you looked at Aaron, man, you said, hey, you know what? Holiness 
to the Lord. Remember what Ephesians 4 says to us in verse 24. And they put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Right? God is defining the feature that's most defining is holiness. That's what it is he wants to see in his priests. And then God gives more specific details about Aaron's clothing. And then he shifts over to his sons here in verse 40. It says, and for Aaron's sons, thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles, uh, like, uh, kind of like underwear, sort of, and bonnets, hats, and thou shalt make for them for glory and for beauty, and thou shalt put them upon Aaron and thy brothers, uh, brother and his sister and his sons with him, and shalt anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister into the, into the, into, unto me in the priest's office, and thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness for the loins even under the thigh they shall, they shall reach, and they shall be upon Aaron. And upon his sons, and when they come in unto the tabernacle of the congregation, the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle is the key, or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place, that they bear no iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto him and his seed after him. God's primary expectation of these priests was holiness. And can I tell you, it's the same thing for us. Listen to what he says to us in 1 Peter chapter. 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts, right? What did, what did Ephesians 4 teach us? Deceitful lusts, not like we used to be. Verse 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Conversation there in your King James Bible means lifestyle. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And so God's call to his priests both then and now, is that they would be holy. Yeah. And so once we have that standard established, I want us to go even deeper into Aaron's story. And we're going to look at two points in this. These are sub-points. First of all, considering how it was that he missed. He missed the mark. And then we're also going to look at how the call, how they fulfilled their call. So looking at the Aaronites, we're going to see where the mark was missed, and we're going to see where it was, where they were fulfilled their call. And so we look into the Aaronites, okay? We need to recognize the fact that God's call wasn't just upon Aaron. When we look back in Exodus, that Exodus 28, what we have to realize is the fact that, listen, Aaron's sons are adults when the call goes out. Listen to this, and it says, Take thou uh, unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And so we see their names listed, Nadab, Abihu, uh, Eleazar and Ithamar. And what we're going to find as we get into their story is there'll be two of them. And guess what, man? They're going to do great. They're going to do wonderful. And there's, there's two of them. And boy, oh boy, they are going to model for us selfish unfaithfulness and failure. And we'll see that in their story. But first, I want us to take a look into their father. How it was that their father missed the mark because Aaron, Aaron also missed the mark. Remember, it was Aaron who functioned as a spokesman for God. Whenever, and whenever Moses was called to go to talk to Pharaoh, Moses was like, ah, yeah, I got a stutter, man. I'm probably not your dude. You know, you find somebody else, somebody who's a better talker because I'm not your guy. And he was like, you know what? Tell you what, I'll use Aaron. And so what happened whenever Moses first went? Moses didn't talk. Aaron talked for him. Over time, Moses became the one that would speak. But Aaron was his supporter. He was there with him every step of the way. When God initially called Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and he told Aaron, hey, guess what? This is what God's called me to Aaron didn't question. He was like, okay, let's go. 
Let's go to see Pharaoh. And then what happens? Later on, they go and they, they find themselves in a battle in the wilderness. And they're battling against the Amalekites. And Joshua's down there leading the army. And Moses, when he holds his hands up, man, they're just, just tearing it up. They're victory, victory, victory. But when Moses gets tired and drops his hands, they start to lose. And so there's a man named Hur and there's Aaron. And guess what they do? They take Moses' arms and they go, Aaron, Moses, we're going to hold your arms. And they hold his hands up all day long. In the victory, so Moses proves himself, or Aaron proves himself to be this uh, this faithful man. But at the same time, Aaron's human, and guess what? Aaron has some failures. There's a time whenever uh, Aaron and his sister Miriam, right? They're looking at Moses, and and it's uh, they, he has an Ethiopian wife, and they start to become critical of Moses, and they start to think of all things that he's doing wrong, and they start bad mouthing him and running him down. And God doesn't take it too nicely or too, too uh, he's not happy about it, let's put it that way. Yeah. And Miriam ends up actually with leprosy for like seven days. But God restores them and makes it better, right? There's a failure with Aaron whenever Moses goes up on the, on the Mount, of, Mount Sinai and he leaves Aaron in charge. Hey, Aaron, just take care of stuff while I'm gone. But he's gone for 40 days. And boy, idle hands. Next thing you know, Aaron's like, hey, let's get all of our gold, put it together and let's see what we can do. And he makes a golden calf. He leads a rebellion against God. And God comes down, man, and it's, it's a bad scene. But he fails, and guess what? God still restores him. Yes. But there is something that Aaron is involved in where God does not restore him, yes. where he fails completely. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, what happens there is this is whenever they're in a place called Meribah. And in Meribah, the, the, the children of Israel have been following Moses, and they find themselves in this desert, and there's no water. And they're like... Wait, you brought us out here to die of thirst? Mm-hmm. And he, he goes to God and says, you know, God, what do I do? And God says, okay, go over there. There's a rock over there. You see that rock? Go walk. Go over that rock, and I want you to take your stick and strike it one time. Bam. He does, and man, water just comes pouring out. Living water. Remember in John 4 when Jesus meets the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well? Yeah. And he says, I am that living water. Here's a picture, right? <laughs> picture. There's a connection. And what we find out is the fact that we're going to show, show it to you in a minute. That is Christ. He is pictured in that rock. But what happens is there's another instance where, again, they find themselves in the same place. And guess what? It's the same problem. There's no water. And God says, Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to go to that rock. And I want you to speak to that rock. And when you speak to that rock, guess what? Water's going to come pouring out of it. But Moses isn't in the best mood that day. I don't know what happened. He rolled. (laughs) I don't know how he rolled out of his tent. He was not feeling it. And he was frustrated. You ever just been like on edge? For whatever reason, Moses ain't having it today. And when they're complaining, it's just getting on his nerves. He's just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's go over to the rock. Let's go. And here we go, Numbers 20, verses 10 and 12. It says this. It says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels. This is Moses. Listen. Hear now, ye rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Notice. Who's bringing the water? Moses. Must we fetch water out of the rock? Not God's going to do this. We're going to do it. I'm going to do this in the power of my flesh. Notice this. And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank. God still meets it, but he did not do what God required of him. And what we're going to find out is the fact that literally in striking the rock a second time, Moses and Aaron were dishonoring the Lord's sacrifice 
on the cross. Because again, this rock is a picture of Jesus. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that I mentioned before, and we look at verse number 4, and he says this, And did all drink, talking of the Israelites, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He says, let me give you the decoder ring and let you know that in that Old Testament story, that was talking about Jesus. And so what happened, the first time Jesus came, He was to be smitten. He was to be bitten, beaten. He was to be, to, be, to, be, uh, to be struck. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. All we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That was the first time. He came, and it was by way of violence. Salvation came by way of violence. But then after that, guess what? It would come just simply through a prayer. I could receive the gift of Christ. Not because Jesus needs to get sacrificed again. Oh, no, no, no. I just have to believe in what it is that's, that's been done. But because of defying God's instructions and striking the rock a second time, Moses and Aaron desecrated God's picture of his plan to redeem the world. Hebrews describes this kind of faith in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. It says, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Okay, These are people that say, hey, I've been saved, but the problem is I've fallen away and I need to get saved again. Notice this. Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. They're going to kill Jesus. They're going to put Jesus on the cross again. So he died for the sins of the world. But they're saying, you know what? I need to go and get saved again. I need to get Jesus to die again. And put him to an open shame. What's being addressed here is false religious teaching that requires a second salvation for those that have not walked with God properly. Again, understand, there are two things. There is your salvation, which is up to God. And there is your sanctification, which is up to you. Right? This is where people struggle. This is not up to us. We can't gain our salvation. We can't do anything to gain our salvation. We receive it by faith and faith alone. And so what we see is this picture here. This is bad teaching. Jesus died once and for all to satisfy the sin debt of all mankind. That means that anyone who comes to Him by faith and receives Him as Savior will have their sin debt paid in full. Not because they're worthy, not because they deserve it, not because they did anything, simply because they received His work. And so understand, Moses and Aaron's failure brought this response from God in Exodus, or in, uh, um, in wherever it is, number, page, page, or verse 12. I can't think where I'm at. Here's how it continues. He says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me, in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Remember, there's rewards that are coming in the promised land. That's where this whole thing's all about. It's about getting to the promised land. It's Moses, it's what you've been doing all this time. It's Aaron, it's what you've been doing all this time. But you're not going to make it. You're not going not gonna to make it. And so Aaron disqualified himself from being God's servant. And like Moses, he would die in the wilderness having never experienced God's reward at all. But what about his descendants, right? What about his descendants? What we see here is the fact that the children of Aaron, as I stated before, two of them would honor their calling, and there would be two 
That would actually desecrate it. And this brings us to the two that will desecrate, and this is going to be Nadab and Abihu. And if you recognize those names, traditionally it's attached to just one awful event. That's all we really know about these guys. So what's going to happen, the account I'm getting ready to read you, it's in Leviticus chapter number 10. This is about a year after the calling. So God's established them to become the priests. It's about a year later, Nadab and Abihu are, are doing their priestly jobs, unfortunately. But this is also to give you a frame of reference this failure we're getting ready to see is about 38 years before the failure we just heard of Aaron. So this is way back in the beginning of this process. Listen to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. It says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense therein <coughs> and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Remember, I've talked to you guys about this. This Specifically, whenever there was an incense that was to be burned, there was only one option. God had designed exactly the type of incense to be used and where the fire would come from. These guys said, you know what? What's the big deal? I mean, this would be easier. Instead of walking all the way over there and getting all that stuff and getting all the ingredients, I got some incense. You got some incense? Just, just toss them there. Ain't no my gun, though. Let's just do it, man. Let's just walk on and do it. <laughs> and they go rolling on. And you know what? Not a good idea. And there went out fire from the Lord, right? And devoured them, and they died before the Lord. God kills them. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This it is, he said, This is it, that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. Listen, holiness is key. And before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In the failures of Nadab and Abihu and Moses and Aaron, what we see here is God's issue, his reasoning behind a death sentence is all tied to the same thing. There's two statements that were made in the 38 years between these statements. He said this when he spoke to Nadab and Abihu. I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. With Moses and Aaron, he says this, same thing, same failure. Because you believe me not to sanctify me, in the eyes of the children of Israel. As my representatives, listen, you have dishonored me. And so we see that there are serious consequences to dishonoring God. There are serious consequences to unholiness and to, and to dishonoring the Lord. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, they correlate it to our time. And look at this, it says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Do you think Nadab and Abihu were mocking God a little bit? Ah, it's not a big deal. Oh, yeah? Verse 8 says this, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. It's a warning to you and I. If we live in our flesh, guess what? We're going to reap destructive outcomes. But the good news is, he says this also in Galatians chapter 6, 8, But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. He says, listen, I will bless you eternally. And so where one has destructive outcomes, one has a blessed outcome. Explains to us that God rewards those who faithfully represent him. And this brings us to Aaron's other two sons, the ones that actually did fulfill their call. We look here, it says, uh, these, as we're looking at this, this breakdown of us, as we're looking at um, this chapter 21 in Joshua, or what we're seeing in these portion that we're studying is literally the, um, the sons of Aaron, these guys right here, these are the ones that did it right. This is them receiving their blessings. This is going to be starting off with, first of all, Eleazar. Now, Eleazar was the older brother, and what would happen is Eleazar, his job would be to assume the role as the high priest 
at the death of his father. We see it taking place here in Numbers chapter 20, verses 24 through 26. It says, And Aaron shall be gathered unto his people. When you see that, gathered unto his people, it's not good. You're going to die. Um, For he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because he rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up, he's speaking to, to Moses, unto Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments. Those garments that were specifically made for Aaron to honor and worship God. He says, strip them off of them. Take it off of Aaron. And put them on Eleazar. Notice this. And put them upon Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered unto his people and shall die there. So literally, they go up on the mountain. The promised land's off in the distance. He says, hey, listen, take that stuff off of Aaron. Put it on Eleazar. And when they do, Aaron falls over dead. Man, God's not messing around. And Eleazar takes that role on. He becomes a spiritual advisor to Moses over this next year. And then what's going to happen to Moses? Moses is going to die. And then what will happen? Joshua will take the leadership role. And guess what Eleazar does? He becomes the spiritual advisor to Joshua. And he's in this whole thing with him. And then for the next seven generations, the high priest will be chosen from the lineage of Eleazar. And so we see his story, and there's a lot about Eleazar. We see him throughout Scripture. But then there's his little brother, Ithamar. I don't know that I would be happy with that name as a child, but it is what it is. Um, there's Ithamar. And although he's much less well-known, what's interesting is there's some really cool things that we learned about Ithamar and his, his faithfulness. One of the things was his job, which was an extremely important one, his essential role was managing the tabernacle. This was his job. So what he did was not only did he supervise, he was kind of like a, like a project manager, uh, a, a shift supervisor. And he watched over, guess who? The Gershonites and the Merarites. This was his job. Numbers 4 verse 28 says this, This is the service of the families of the sons of Gershon in the tabernacle of the congregation, and their charge shall be under the hand of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. Numbers 4.33 says this, This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari, according to all their services in the tabernacle of the congregation, under the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Mm-hmm. So Ithamar's duties was to make sure that everything was done properly. Everything was done in order. His job was different than his brother's, but it was equally equally as important. Scripture reveals also that Ithamar was the one that was supposed to make sure that all the parts and pieces, almost like he was the guy that was like at the checklist. Okay, you got the beams? How many beams you got there? You got, okay, I got 10 beams. All right, got that. How many rings? You got 50 rings? Got that, 50 rings. 49? Better find that other ring, buddy. All right, 50 rings. And he made sure it was all taken care of. Notice this in Exodus 38, 21. This is the sum of the tabernacle, even of the tabernacle of testimony, as it was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son to Aaron the priest. So Ithamar was faithful to do his job to maintain the integrity and the sanctification of God's tabernacle. That was his job. And what's very interesting is that tabernacle, that tent that was supposed to be a temporary house for the Lord, you realize that when they established that tent, because there, no one took the, took the, had the thought to go, let's build a more permanent version of this, not for 440 years until Solomon built the temple. That was God's dwelling place on the earth. That's the thing David experienced, right? David had that great sense. He's like, man, I've got this mansion. God's still in a tent. And Solomon looked at his great mansion. He's like, man, God still just got a tent. But amazingly, Ithamar did his job. And guess what? His descendants did their job. And no parts were lost over 440 years. That's a pretty faithful job, I'd say. 
So, in response to the faithfulness of these men, we're now seeing that they are, they are receiving their rewards. They're receiving what it was that, that, that they earned for remaining holy and remaining sanctified. And so what about those that were providing the rewards, right? I'm glad you asked about them because they're my next point. Number two, a response to holiness, okay? So we see the ones that are receiving it. We see the ones that have qualified because of their holiness, those that disqualified because of their unholiness. And now we have those that are going to, going to respond to the holiness. As, as we'll start the, this examination, I want us to spend our focus or put our focus onto one specific man in particular. His name is Caleb. We've, read, we've studied about Caleb in the past, right? We studied that Caleb was one of the 12 spies that went into the promised land. He went across and he came back and instead of being fearful like the 10, he said, man, we can take this place. I'm not worried about the giants. Dude, with God on our side, we cannot be defeated. Now, we know that the rest of the people turned their backs. That put them 40 years in, in destruction. But for 40 years, Caleb is pining for, for, for what is to come. And if you remember Caleb's story, there was one place in particular by name that he had his heart set upon. Hebron is the city that he was in love with. Man, he said, you know what? That's what I want. And that's what his, was his request. And here is the request was made. We see in Joshua chapter 14. Now Joshua is going to respond, led by God, to Caleb's request for Hebron. Now, therefore, give me this mountain, this is Caleb speaking, whereof the Lord spake in that day, for thou heardest in that day how the Anakims, these are giants, were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me. Then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron for an inheritance. Boy, oh boy, this is it. That's his desire of his heart. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day. Why? Because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. So we hear the heart of Caleb. It was sold out to God. He had given the Lord everything. Joshua, a picture of Christ, now gives Caleb the desire of his heart as a reward for his faithfulness. Man, did you notice when we read our scripture, it says that the, the Aaronites, they got the first lot. And the very first city on the docket to be given away just happens to be Hebron. Listen, verses 11, Joshua 21, verses 11 and 12. And they gave them the city of Arba, the father of Anak. Which city is Hebron? And the hill country of Judah with the suburbs thereof round about it. But the fields of the cities outside the outskirts and the villages thereof gave they to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. For possession. So though God gave Caleb his heart's desire, not only did he give him the city, but we know based upon Joshua 15, verses 13 through 14, that, Je that Caleb went to that city. He defeated those giants. He risked everything to gain the city that he said he desired. He made it his own. And now almost immediately, God's asking him to give it up. The desire of his heart, his earthly treasure on earth. God, this is what I want. And God says, okay, for a time, but not too long. Can you imagine being in Caleb's shoes? Literally, God's blessed you with something. Or let me word it this way, someone, right? That you've always wanted. 
that special individual, that special thing. And God lets you give it your whole heart. You know, this is all I ever wanted. And then God says, I need you to give that to me. Some of you, flaws, people that you love. And you thought you wanted them forever. This is all I ever wanted. But there came a day when God said, no. I need you to let him go. I have another purpose. That's not easy. But Caleb did it. He gave it up. And you see, the only way we can do that is if we love the Lord more than this thing or this one that we hold so tight. Because our grip can be like this. I'll never let him go. And sometimes God has to pry him out of our fingers. But we've got to be willing, right? Because it's our heart. That's what God's concerned with. It's not the thing. It's not, the, it's not even the person. See, so many times God wants our heart and there are other things that have our hearts. There are the things that have control that we will not let go. And God brings tragedy to separate us from these things that we value so much. It's only the willingness to surrender them because our love for God is greater than our love for this. This is the key. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus instructs us. He says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves don't break through nor steal. For where your treasure is... This is one of the most powerful statements that the Lord makes in all of Scripture pertaining to us. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's so important because the thing that we treasure has our heart. If we treasure the Lord above everything else, then guess what? Man, He takes preeminence. But if we're not careful, we develop idols in our life. And guess what? They become our treasures. Caleb, as well as the other Israelites, you know what they show us? A willingness, they willingly gave up their earthly blessings in order to honor God. We don't see it listed here that they stingily had them pried out of their fingers as they muttered under their breath, fine, yeah, I just, you know, I just got that city and I just did all this work and I mean, just knocked out the kings and I just, I literally just painted the bedroom the color that I chose that I've been thinking about for 40 years, for goodness sakes, and I just got that new bed and, oh, are you kidding me? No. That's not the way it is. But see, there are some of us, and that's the way we give. Fire it out of my dead fingers. Right? And so listen, it's this heart behind it, right? Paul describes this willingness to give in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according, listen, as he hath purposed in his heart. His heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. You know what, Lord? I don't understand, but I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. 
For you see, what Caleb and his brethren are modeling for us is that what's given is not nearly as important as the heart behind what is given. It's modeled for us in Scripture. Jesus goes and watches an instance, and it's recorded in Scripture two different times so we can get it. Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. It says, and Jesus sat over against the treasury. So they're in the temple, right? There was a place where they would receive coins. There was like a box. And they would bring coins in and they would drop the coins in the box. Now, there were rich people back then that would gather a lot of, they had the amount to give and they would get smaller coins so it would be really heavy. So it would sound like, pukunk, pukunk. Oh, man, listen, that guy, pukunk. Oh, man, he really gave a lot. Pukunk, right? Imagine that, okay? He sat over against the treasury and behold, how the, people fat, uh, how the people cast money in the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow. Imagine this lady, tattered, clothing, pitiful, walking in. And she threw in two mites. Tink, tink. Kapunk, kapunk. Tink, tink. Right? And notice this. Would you make a farthing? And he called unto his disciples and saith unto them, Hey, fellas. Lesson time, gather up. See what we just saw right there? This is an important principle that you guys need to understand. Listen to what he says. Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which cast into the treasury. Now, if you're an analytical thinker, you might be like, I'm pretty sure that if I get those coins out of there and count them, that is not true, Lord. That's definitely not. I'm just telling you. I'm good at math, and I heard what went in there. There ain't no way. So now he qualifies it. He tells them, For all they did cast in of their abundance. They had enough to give, and it didn't hurt them. But she, of her want, did cast in all that she had, even all her living. So the things that she needed to survive just to feed herself, she gave it all. She said, you know what? I'm not going to put my faith in my substance. I'm going to put my faith in my Lord who promised that, listen, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, I'll meet the need. You just give to me. And what happened was she didn't just give her money. She gave her heart. Her heart. Yes. That's what God wants. See, this whole thing. Why does God talk about money so much? Because we're in love with money. Why does God talk about all the things of the world? Because guess what? We love them. And he says, no, you're supposed to love me. Do you not understand? You're unfaithful to me because of your love for this stuff. This stuff will all burn up with a fervent heat, but I will last forever and our relationship will be forever. Can you not focus on the eternal and what really matters and let go of this junk? But what do we do? God, I don't want to give it up. And he says, it's the thing that's separating you from me. Do you not realize? It's making you unfaithful. I love you. I want your heart. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about our hearts. Giving is a matter of the heart. Caleb gave up his beloved Hebron to the honor of the Aaronite service to his beloved, more beloved Lord. For you see, in the end, we support our church. We give to missions. We, we, We give ourselves to the work of the Lord. You know why? To give honor where honor is due. That's right. God deserves it. Yes. He's done so much. He's, I mean, my gosh, if you're saved today, praise God. He paid his literally life's blood yeah. to cover our debt. Yeah. 
And yet we struggle with the things of the world because we think they're more important than, than what he did. It's a shame. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm with you. But just because it's a struggle that we all recognize, it doesn't mean we need to accept it. Right? Find those things that have your heart and be willing to let them go. If they take preeminence over God, they become an idol in your life. Address them, recognize them, and, and sanctify yourself from them. Amen. Set yourself apart that you might make a difference because this life's not about us. It's about the lives that our life can touch. And as a priest, we're supposed to be ministering to those around us. But if we're consumed with something else, you know what they see? They see that something else. Right. And they, they go, you know what? We look just like everybody else. It's the peculiarity of the fact that we love God above all else that makes it special. Listen, man, he is, he is worthy and deserving of our absolute best. The question is, is that what we're giving him? It's a challenge to all of us. Are we giving him our best? Because we're not promised tomorrow. The Bible says it is but a life is but a vapor. It appears to be real, but it vanishes away. Charlie's dad yesterday thought that in October he'd be walking his daughter down the aisle. He had no idea they'd be in glory yesterday. Most people that go to heaven had no idea. Or hell, that is. Because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. Are we giving God our best? Because our time grows short. Day by day, it grows short. And when it's done, there's no coming back. There is no reincarnation. That's a load of garbage straight out of hell. We have one shot in this life. How are we going to finish? Most people aren't worried about that. But it should be the priority of our heart. He wants our heart. He loves us. He's given us his heart. And he's just simply asking for us to give ours in return. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for God for your purpose and plan. And Lord, uh, desire to use us, Lord, these failed mortals, uh, Lord, in these bodies of flesh. God, I pray that you'd help us to be surrendered to the spirit that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. God, help us to see this world the way you see it recognizing the wickedness, those things that are trying to draw our hearts. Help us to see them for what they are. They're tools that are trying to destroy and separate us from you. God, I pray that you'd grip our hearts. Help us, Lord Jesus, to surrender. Help us, Lord, to be who it is that you called us to be. God, I pray that we would give our all, our all. We would give our best. Like that widow, Lord, it gave everything. Do we have that heart? Are we willing? In America, we are so consumed with stuff. So many things that we think are so important that don't mean anything at all. And what we value on earth, unfortunately, doesn't mean anything in heaven. And the things that really matter in heaven, sadly for most people, don't mean anything to them here on earth. Lord, would you shift our orientation? Would you help us shift our perspective that we would see things the way that you do? Thank you, God, for the word of God. Thank you for the truth that we revealed today. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to get serious about our relationship with you. And Father, with heads bowed and with our eyes closed, I'm going to take a break and just speak to you guys with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Listen, if you're here today and you said, listen, I don't know where I stand with God. There are people that are religious that believe in God that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Salvation is not a matter of a religious prayer that is said one day. It's not a matter of things that we do or membership in a church. It is a place and an issue of the heart. As God compels humanity, Jesus said, No one cometh to the Father, but the cometh to me, but the Father draw him. The compulsion of the Lord draws the lost person to a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you say, Listen, I'm not sure if I died today, I'm on my way to heaven. Can I promise you this? God doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants you to go to heaven. He loves you enough. He loved you enough to die on the cross. And when he died, he paid for the debt of the world. But it's a gift that's offered to each individual. We have to receive a gift. It's not forced upon us. It's a gift paid for by the one that gives it, but received free by the one that receives it. And so by by faith, the Bible says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If God's offering that gift to you today, and you are ready to receive it, and you've never done so, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. Now, there's no magic in the prayer. There's no ceremony attached to this. There is a loving God reaching out to you, and all you have to do is respond. So if you're listening to this recorded, you're watching it live, you can pray this prayer. It doesn't take a preacher. This is between you and him. So I'm going to lead you in prayer. I'm going to pray out loud, and I'm going to ask you to pray in your heart and mind if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, if you're serious about it. Don't say the prayer. Don't don't do this if it's just a... Just a, a, an act. If you're sincere and God's calling you, then respond. If not, don't do it. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry for my sin. I recognize my failures but I also understand that you love me in spite of them. I believe that you died on the cross for the sins of the world. I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how. Lord, to save my soul, to give me a home in heaven, and to make me whole with you. God, thank you for saving me. I trust you with my forever, and I look forward to seeing you in person one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.